0: Welcome to a special Live from Hanoi episode of the NK News podcast. I'm your regular host, Jacko Zwetslut. I'm back here in Seoul. And so this podcast will be presented to you by Chad O'Carroll, Oliver Hotham and Dagyam G, three of our finest writers and analysts from NK News who have gone down to Hanoi to witness the second summit between President Donald Trump and Chairman Kim Jong-un, and they will be giving you their thoughts and observations as they come from Hanoi. So keep listening.
1: Okay, good uh, good day, everybody, for a very special podcast or lounge cast. Uh, we are sitting in Hanoi Airport, and um, we just thought we'd do a quick uh, conversation, me Oliver, This is Chad O'Carroll by the way, Uh, Oliver Hotham who's our Managing Editor and Dag Yamji, our Star Korean Correspondent. Um, Obviously we've just finished our reporting from the Hanoi Vietnam Summit and we're just going to briefly talk about what happened and how we all feel at the end of this very tiring long week, four or five days. start out with Oliver, Um,
0: what's your takeaway from this week? So I think um, running in the run-up to the summit, there was a lot of expectation about what we were going to see, um, myself included, and pretty much everyone I spoke to was under the impression that Hanoi was going to be a much bigger deal than Singapore, that we were going to see some kind of really substantial agreement between the US and North Korea. I think the main crux of that revolved around uh, the idea that North Korea would essentially offer up. Yonbyan as a um, bargaining chip and that the Americans in return would give some partial sanctions relief. But it turns out we were right in assuming that would be the deal that was being discussed, but we were wrong in assuming that it was something that the Americans would accept. And as yesterday wore on, what began as something that kind of felt quite optimistic, we had um, a social dinner between Kim and Trump uh, the previous evening where it was all smiles Um, Trump talked about what a good friend and good relationship he had with Kim Jong-un. The next day they had a a morning meeting and and then a kind of roundtable discussion where it all seemed to be going pretty well. Kim Jong-un made some comments about being open to liaison offices being set up. But then after that, everything seemed to just fall apart. We began to hear that a planned lunch between the two sides had been cancelled, and then after that it was increasingly clear that a joint statement by the two sides was simply not going to emerge. By about, I think it was one thirty, when Kim Jong-un's limousine left the Metropole Hotel, uh, where he was staying, um, it was essentially clear that the summit had had fallen apart, that there was going to be no agreement between the US and DPRK, um, and that we were essentially, um, this was a dud summit. Um, And then... We had Trump's press conference um, where he kind of explained that it was all about sanctions and that, yeah, we'd correctly guessed that the North Koreans would say we want partial sanctions relief for um, giving up and, uh but we were wrong in assuming that the Americans would yeah, support that kind of deal.
1: Yeah, yeah so I, I was uh, picked in a sort of lottery fashion to participate in the, the press conference yesterday with, with uh, uh, Donald Trump, I got an email. Uh, saying you've been picked to go, and we got on this bus going toward uh, the tourist bus. It was very, very bizarre. I was an open-top tourist bus, and we went to Trump's hotel, and no one knew what was going on. All we knew that was that the normal press conference should have been at four or five o'clock, I think. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, we were told it was going to be at two, and it was a lot of confusion. It frankly felt like what it's like in North Korea when you are woken up at three a.m. to go to these press events. You have no idea what it's about and uh, you're just sort of waiting for information. And then when Trump came out, yeah, it was all clear that it was uh, going to be not, not good, basically. And what we'd heard in the days prior to the summit was that, uh, from informed sources, that while the US and North Korea had done quite uh, effective negotiations and prepared a, a sort of draft joint statement on a wide range of issues, relating to the Singapore declaration. No progress was basically made on the nuclear issue, but
0: um, fair play maybe to to Trump for walking away. This is a gap that's existed for months and months. There have been working-level negotiations. I mean, this is a gap that's existed between the US and North Korea since before the Singapore summit. So what's been the purpose of everything, of all this diplomacy? It seems that working-level negotiators essentially avoided the issue of denuclearization, or at least didn't make any progress on it and assumed that maybe Trump's personal deal-making abilities and Kim Jong-un's own um, willingness to, to get something quick and get a quick win would lead to an agreement. But you can't negotiate these kinds of agreements in, what was it, five, six hours?
1: Yeah. Dagim, how do you feel as a Korean with the outcome of all this?
2: Um, so just before the summit, many South Korean experts predict that the Trump may make concession of allowing um the resumption of um allowing the redemption of Kaesong industrial complex and mountain gunung, and so Seoul has been has been really optimistic, and Moon has all the schedules that they and watching he was yeah waiting for the firing ceremony, and clearly Seoul couldn't expect that this um they just left the room without signing any document, so from Seoul's side it's really it's a huge loss there because Moon really want to um, boost national economy by resuming gasong industrial complex and by reopening Mountain Gunggang tourism, and Moon believes that that's the only way to revive the national economy who faces structural problems. But now we face it really huge hurdle now. Yeah. the Trump said that North Korea wanted to um ease all the sanctions and he couldn't do it unless they um dismantle another complex which he didn't mention and at the press center. So I think from the source perspective it's really, really um hard for me to make breakthrough. Yes. Yeah.
1: And how do you how do you think conservatives in South Korea will see this? Will they think, "Oh, this is evidence that Moon's inter-Korean goal is just nonsense," or will there be sympathy? They 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 realize that Trump maybe had a difficult choice. How do you think this will go down domestically in in South Korean politics?
2: I mean, it will obviously have a huge negative impact on Moon's approval rate and Moon's power in domestically, and. Um, since the Blue House um, hinted that Trump and Kim Jong-un may agree um, the declaration of the end of the Korean War um, at the summit and since then all the conservative parties start to attack the Moon government that, um, so signing the declarations means with the withdrawal of US forces in South Korea so I believe the conservative parties may feel regrettable but they would be also like, relieved that Nothing actually would come out from the, all the progress, and Moon was the one who actually took the initiative. And Moon actually, who is the person who pulled all the Trump and Kim Jong Un to the negotiation table as a mediator. So, if this summit goes wrong, I think Moon should take huge responsibility for mm-hmm. the, all the process.
0: Well, I mean. I think that might be a little bit unfair on Moon because I mean Moon can't take responsibility for U.S. and North Korean negotiations. No, 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 no,
2: no, no. Moon is the one who actually facilitated. Moon actually want to speed up the U.S. and DPRK mm. negotiations and... through
1: inter-Korean relations. Yeah,
2: through inter-Korean relations. And I when I met the expert in this, all the people said that okay, Moon did a great job in terms of like inter-Korean relations and ongoing process on the Korean Peninsula, but biggest fault he made is that he was um, did he made all the progress in a rushed manner, in a mm. hasty manner. So he should be more careful. He should have be been more careful about all the progress. So I think as a mediator and who yeah, as a mediator I think Moon should take full responsibility. And we have to remember that um, in March, back in March last year, it wasn't Kim Jong-un who mentioned the complete denuclearizations in public so all the South Korean um, delivered Kim's remarks on behalf of Kim after his meeting with in Pyongyang so mm. I think Seoul also has to take the responsibility if something goes wrong in a way, yeah in a sense
1: <coughs> Moon does after all have a, a supposed hotline to Kim Jong-un and one wonders if he could have used that before this summit to have a chat and talk about what the likely U.S. Uh, approach would be. I mean, I didn't see in the news any sign of, of uh, that kind of indirect um, coordination between the U.S. and North Korea through South Korea ahead of that. Now that's probably because the U.S. was doing its own pre-negotiations. But maybe it could have helped if if Moon had been sort of. Whispering into Kim Jong Un's ear that uh, you're you going to need to be flexible on this, I can tell you now, Trump is not going to budge on point A, B, and C, because at the end of the day, it seems like both Trump and Kim uh, overestimated their negotiating capabilities and overestimated their leverage, and so we're, we're left with a sort of nothing burger. Yeah.
2: I mean, Pyongyang may might believe that Seoul could um help Pyongyang to its sanctions in a way, but since the establishment of working group between Washington and Seoul, I think Seoul lost its leverage in negotiations with Pyongyang. And Pyongyang realized that oh Seoul is um, Seoul play Seoul couldn't play a huge role um, in persuading the Trump administration to <coughs> sanctions. So I think from the U.S. and North Korean side, Seoul's uh, strategic value has been diminished in a way since yeah. then. So yeah, I I believe that. So that's why they thought that Seoul's intervene and Seoul's mediator were um were kind of unnecessary. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, we've, mm-hmm. we we're gonna have another podcast next week where we talk like in detailed analysis about all of the outcomes in the next steps. So I don't want to talk too much about what we all think, but um oliver what was
0: the most memorable moment of the week for you i mean there were loads i would say right off the bat um our visit to the north korean restaurant in hanoi was um was very interesting oh that was Dagum's first time with Uh, yeah that was the first time Dagum had met (laughs) north koreans um she was a little bit um (laughs) tongue-tied at first um but um you know they got along like a house on fire of course um it was a very interesting experience. The food was, it was great and those restaurants are very surreal because you step into them no matter where you are and it just feels like you're in, in Pyongyang and they capture the vibe completely. On top of that I think uh, last night's little escapade, um, running after Ri ho is probably a big a big memory. We, um, on uh, Thursday night just after the summit um, we got word at about midnight that North Korean Foreign Minister Ri ho was going to make a surprise press conference. Um, and of course it was going to be at the Melia where, where they were all staying. So we dashed in the rain to get to the hotel only to find that it was completely blocked off by police. The press conference had already started and there was no way of us getting in. So we essentially stood in the pouring rain while I held a recording device next to a South Korean reporter who was streaming the press conference. Yeah,
1: it was total chaos. Like I got, (laughs) I I ran and arrived in, Within moments of arriving and panting, a Japanese TV reporter had a camera in my face, asking me what what was going on. And then an Arirang reporter did the same. Yeah, it was just people, everybody trying to make sense of of just being on a perimeter fence.
0: <laughs> yeah, and when the press conference had already started, and our colleagues. In you know London and uh, Colombia um, and in even in our hotel in Hanoi, we had a much better grasp of what was going on than us, and we were just you know, less than a hundred meters away from it all. What about you, Dagam?
2: Yeah, obviously, I, I went to the North Korean restaurant for the first time in my life, and it was my first time that I actually observed that thousands of North Korean interacting with each other without any restrictions. So, I mean. If you live in South Korea, you can never yeah, speak to North Korean without the permission from the government. And there, but South Korean just freely um share a job with um North Korean. And even one other, she asked <laughs> North Korean step that, oh, do I look handsome? And North Korean <laughs> replied that no, yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that was... Didn't
1: she ask him to have? A, oh, he asked for a drink with her.
2: He ha- uh, yeah. Then she said, yeah, oh, we wouldn't do it, yeah, if you pay a million dollars, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was kind of like yeah so i thought i actually realized the importance of like exchanges between people yeah it was yeah nice and Mm. fresh to see people just interacting with each other yeah
1: yeah and what did you think about the vietnam compared to singapore when we were in singapore for the summit recently What, what do you think
2: I think no one has experience of dealing with the DPRK US summit. And so I thought that everyone was kind of, um, don't have any like background stuff. Mm. So um, for this summit, I think everyone yeah did develop their skills in terms of like government, all the like, US government, North Korean, and all the media. So I think Vietnam summit was more fun compared to Singapore, yeah. even though there were certain restrictions and we could go to the like hotel. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, yeah, it was definitely more fun
1: and the story was much more turbulent, which is good for
0: us. (laughs) And um, yeah, I felt like, you know, I mean, the pluses and minuses of the two locations are essentially the pluses and minuses of the places themselves, right? Like, you know, Hanoi was a little bit chaotic. There wasn't a lot of great communication. Um, You know, it was difficult to get photos and things like that. There were technical problems uh, with the live stream, while Singapore the problems were all about heavy government control and being stuck away somewhere far away from the action. And, um, you know, I think they were both, you know, great places. Um, I think it benefited both sides that neither of these places are democratic countries. So you don't have to worry about protests. You don't have to worry about um, journalists, you know, exercising their right to the free press because it doesn't exist. yeah I think it I I think if a summit was in Switzerland or Sweden or something like that or even Mongolia that might be more diff, more might be more difficult for the hosts.
2: Yeah but I think in my opinion South Korean government could share their know-how yeah mm. well, how to operate yeah international Media center because they did a really good job yeah during the two summit yeah inter-Korean summit yeah.
1: Yeah just for our listeners um what that again means is that at the two summits the foreign press were obviously all in the, the international press centres, but the Koreans actually prepared a area for just South Korean or Korean speaking journalists, um, which I didn't get to see. Did Oliver you saw it?
0: Yeah, I saw it. It just looked like a the Korean press centre in in a summit. Um, it was seemed okay though. Well,
1: and what's the difference in terms of working in there versus working in there? I, I mean, I
2: mean. By sitting next to government officials, make journalists easy to like get updates from the Seoul side. So I think it's beneficial. And what I meant is that, so I covered all the like inter-Korean stuff on the ground, right, at the press centers. And the way they, the way Seoul provide information was really good. So they actually provide like briefing update every hours about the inter-Korean summit but i didn't see any um effort when i was in singapore and vietnam so i think both governments should try to provide more updates because i frankly speaking like just i mean we flew to hanoi to just to cover the story and i think we have to get advantages uh, by covering all the stuff in hanoi so i think if the u.s government could briefing if the -the off-the-record briefing yeah it's good would be really great so yeah yeah
0: Yeah. (laughs) I mean one of the one of the themes of the visit was the the differences between um, the regular international press and the White House press corps um, (laughs) who who love to seem to love making themselves the center of attention you know we had they were apparently um, evicted from the Melia bear in mind all the reporters that were staying in the Melia, I think, managed to keep their rooms. It was just that the press centre that had been set up for the the White House press call was moved. Because um, obviously Kim Jong-un was staying there. And um, there was a lot of um, great outrage about this denial of the free press. The Washington
1: Post got very upset about yeah. it. And actually, I think they blamed Kim Jong-un himself, yeah. um, which seemed quite outrageous. But then the problem from all of this was we had reserved seating on the Tuesday evening in the press center and we put NK News signs down and then the very next day we tried to enter that area and uh, an American official said, you can't you can't sit there, it's for the White House. And we just decided that the US doesn't have any authority to tell us what to do in a Vietnamese press center. So we just said, we'll we'll stay here until the Vietnamese government to tell us to do otherwise. Eventually they did, but... Um, well, <laughs> An Italian journalist.
0: Can you explain what happened to the Italian journalist? Oh, so I I became well acquainted with a um, Italian TV journalist, an older gentleman, I think from Emilia Romagna, um, who was a little bit more stubborn than us. We <laughs> we moved after the Vietnamese told us to move, but this this gentleman refused to move, and actually um, the White House staff very calmly explained to him, "Please say you have to move," and uh, he cho- told them to uh, you know. He used some expletives, um, <laughs> uh, telling them where to shove it. And, um, yeah, I think he did eventually move, though, unfortunately. Um, I was hoping that he would just sit there for the whole the whole thing. But, um, yeah, it was great to see the, the myriad diversity of personalities in the international press. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's international event, right? Mm. So... Yeah, it's DPRK U.S. Summit, so it's obviously important for the White House correspondent, and I understand. But I mean, everyone is is it's, it's the event is important for everyone as well. So I think they have to provide equally provide opportunity for every media to cover the news.
1: Yeah, and the pro- the, the problem the problem with um, some American and not just American but uh, Middle Eastern journalists is that they use this summit as an occasion to ask the government Trump in particular about domestic issues so we, on the first night there was a uh, journalist availability with Trump and Kim jong-un only one question got answered are asked and one of the White House correspondents shouted about Michael Cohen which you think if you' if you you have an, an opportunity to ask Kim jong-un a question, one of the first international journalists to be able to do that. Why on earth would you start talking about Michael Cohen? It's just yeah. a, like you know it, it's just insane. Luckily the next day some of the White House press did manage to get some questions into uh, to, to Kim Jong-un in particular and that was interesting to see him answering um questions from from the press. He didn't look too comfortable um, but yeah, I was at the Trump press, so we had people asking about the Middle East, about Israeli domestic politics. Yeah. And you just think, why are we here in Hanoi for this uh, journalist from the Middle East to be talking about these issues, which are totally unrelated to what's, what we're all here for? To be fair, though, Trump did start the press conference by talking about India and Pakistan yeah, and yeah.
0: Venezuela, which was a mm.
1: strange way to start.
0: Yeah, it felt much less triumphant than Singapore. You know, in the aftermath of Singapore, we had Trump tweeting that the nuclear threat from North Korea is over. Um, You know, like North Korea talks about this new era for relations, uh, whereas now I think it feels much more muted. Um, Yeah. But I suppose maybe that's what it was always going to be like. It's a process.
1: It is. And um, any any other final remarks?
2: Um, I hope this isn't my last Yes. DPRK U.S. summit that I can cover. Yeah, I mean, I work for, I work with this media and life for a long time, but yeah, I hope I can cover more. Yeah, DPRK U.S. summit in the near future.
1: Yeah, and we still hope that there could be this Kim Jong Un visit to Seoul. It doesn't appear too likely at the moment, but maybe they'll have another Panmunjom summit to try and clear up the mess of this one. Um, but yeah, it would be great to go to that. Oliver, any any final thoughts?
0: Um, Well, I I was going to say this earlier when we were talking about Moon Jae-in, but I think there's an opening for um, another summit between Moon and Kim. When Trump and Moon were on the phone, Trump said, you know, please talk to Kim Jong-un and then relay that message to me, at least according to the Blue House. So, you know, we might see some kind of meeting, probably not a Seoul summit, um, but maybe some kind of meeting at Panmunjom again. Um, And then it seemed very much like another North Korea-China summit is also on the horizon. Um, so yeah look out for all of that it'll all be covered in NK News
1: alright that has been the first and probably last edition of the NK News lounge cast and assuming we don't crash on the plane on the way back to Seoul we'll be (laughs) joining you again next week Um, thank you very much for following us this week and for reading our articles retweeting sharing on Facebook Uh, we really appreciate all the feedback we've got and if you ever have any tips or suggestions for how we can improve coverage from these things always please feel free to let us know so from hanoi i bid you i don't know what the vietnamese for goodbye is i'll say uh <laughs> that's french for tomorrow i don't know why i said that um au
2: revoir. all right bye